0: I love singing that, um, just that simple truth. Sometimes we need to be reminded of simple truths and sometimes it's helpful to sing them over and over again. The life flows from God. All life flows from God. The, the breath that we are using right now to sing these songs or even to refrain from singing these songs, if maybe you're here and you don't believe these things are true, but we believe that the breath that you're breathing... The, the breath that you're withholding from singing is breath that God has given to you, because all life flows from God, and um, I, I just love that that simple reminder that we exist only because of God and His goodness, and we exist for Him, and um, so thank you, band, for leading us in that song, and um, pray that we would have that in mind this morning throughout our worship gathering, that... That We are here. We exist by God's grace, by His sustaining power, and we exist for His glory. Um, If you're a guest this morning, again, I want to welcome you. My name is Nathan Smith. I am one of three pastors here. And this morning, I have the uh, privilege of preaching God's Word. We have been in a series preaching through the book of Exodus. And we actually started this series 13 months ago. And if you were here 13 months ago... That very first message in the book of Exodus, Pastor Jason gave an an introduction, kind of an overview to the whole book of Exodus. And in that message, he showed us that there are four major themes in this book. And those themes are all connected, obviously, by who the Lord is and who he's revealing himself to be. So the Lord reveals himself in the book of Exodus as the covenant God who saves his people. You see that in the Dramatic rescue of God's people out of uh, the land of Egypt. They were enslaved. God saves his people. The Lord reveals himself as the covenant God who sustains his people. We see that in God giving his people miraculous food. It's called manna from heaven. Every day he's providing for them, sustaining them. He's providing water, sometimes out of rocks. And the Lord reveals himself in the book of Exodus as the covenant God who speaks to his people. That's what we've been looking at for uh, quite a while now, really starting in Exodus 19. The Israelites are gathered at Mount Sinai. God descends upon Mount Sinai in, in a cloud and fire, and He speaks to His people. And lastly, this major theme that we see in Exodus is that the Lord reveals Himself as the covenant God who settles among His people. And we're kind of right in between that third theme and that fourth theme right now, moving into the fourth theme, God is speaking to his people, but really we're going to see that he's speaking to them from this point on to declare to them, to show them how he's going to settle among them. And so really the the, the bulk of our messages through Exodus are going to focus on that last theme. And if you've been with us, you may have noticed that uh, in our preaching, we actually jumped from chapter 24 Over to chapter 32. We skipped right over Exodus chapters 25 through 31, where Moses is receiving instructions for the tabernacle and worship in the tabernacle. So, starting today, we're going to back up and preach those chapters over the coming weeks. But we're going to preach those chapters in conjunction with chapters 35 through 39. And the reason that we're preaching these together and in this way is that these chapters are almost identical, The earlier chapters, the 25 through 31 that we skipped, they record uh, God giving to Moses the instructions regarding the tabernacle. And then the later chapters, 35 through 39, they record Israel carrying out those instructions. When Moses comes back down from the mountain and gives them the instructions, and then it describes them uh, actually building the tabernacle. And so the content's very similar. We didn't think it would be best in our preaching to go over the same ground twice. And really, if... Uh, the people had been faithful to the covenant relationship that God had brought them into right after the instructions for the tabernacle were given to Moses. The story would have just then moved right into Moses coming down from the mountain, giving the instructions, and the people would have started building the tabernacle at that point. But there's this interlude that we've already preached through because chapters 32 through 34 record that while Moses was on the mountain receiving these instructions, uh, Israel created a golden calf. They they got tired of waiting. They said, we don't know where Moses is, um, so we're going to make an idol, and we're going to declare that this golden calf represents the gods who brought us up out of Egypt. And so they quickly fell into worshiping a false god. And so God, in speaking to Moses, as Moses is up on the mountain, he says, hey, here's what's going on. God righteously says, uh, these people, they're, they're stubborn, they're foolish, they are sinful, they've already turned away from me. Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to start over again and build a nation a people for myself from you. Um, Moses then intercedes for the people. God responds with mercy. He says, okay, I'm not going to wipe the people out, Moses. But then there's what's called a disastrous word in Exodus 33, where God says, I'm not going to destroy them, but I will not go up with you into the land. My presence will not go with you. I will not be dwelling in the midst of you. And so at that point, God had given the instructions for the tabernacle, but they weren't needed because God's saying, I'm not going to go with you. But then Moses again intercedes on behalf of the people in Exodus 33. God again responds with grace and mercy. He says in verse 14 of Exodus 33, okay, my presence will go with you. My presence will go with you. I will give you rest. And then moving into Exodus 34, this covenant that had been broken is now renewed. Moses is again on the mountain for 40 days. He's going to come back down, and because God has said, yes, my presence is going to go with you, they do need to build this tabernacle, this holy place for their God, Yahweh, to dwell in their midst. And so, At last, when we get to Exodus 35, after this delay because of their sin, Moses comes down the mountain, he gives the instructions, and the actual construction of the tabernacle begins in Exodus 35. And so today we're going to be in Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9, and Exodus 35, verses 4 through 9, um, because they're very similar, almost identical passages. And they both uh, describe, well, first, they describe God telling Moses... And then Moses relaying to the people this one big idea. It is that God's design to dwell with his people demands a devoted response. God's design to dwell with his people demands a devoted response. You can almost wrap it. I kind of tried to make it like that so that you could remember it. God's design to dwell with his people demands a devoted response. Alliteration. So hopefully that sticks in your mind because that is... uh, It's the theme here. It's also one of the main themes throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. We see this theme first here in this passage, in the tabernacle, and then in this message as we move forward through redemptive history. We'll see how this theme uh, is made clear in Jesus Christ and then also in the church. And so let's go ahead and read Exodus 25. Again, this is very parallel to Exodus 35, verses 4 through 9. We're not going to read that passage But I will refer to it several times, so you may want to go ahead and stick a finger there as well. But we're going to read Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. And I'm going to ask you to stand, please, because this is the Word of God. And we stand in recognition that when we read Scripture, God is speaking to us. Starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. God, we pray that you will... Bless this reading of your word and the preaching of your word to build up your people. Form us into this dwelling place that you have called us to be. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So I... I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's kind of struck me that we seem to, as humans, have a sort of built-in attraction for fixer-upper stories. Um, Back in the day, I think it was 1979, the show This Old House with Bob Vila first appeared, and uh, it seemed like that could be kind of a faddish thing, watching some guy work on a house. Um, But that show, actually, I think it's still running uh, with a different host, I think he's gone through a few different hosts. It's Still running. It's had some spin-offs from that, and then you've got uh, about a million sort of splinter shows on HGTV. I mean, basically that whole network is uh, Fixer Upper stories. The show Fixer Upper was obviously hugely popular, and we seem to just have this kind of attraction to this intrigue that we that we find in restoration stories, stories of things being fixed up. And maybe, you know, house restoration isn't your thing, but uh, you might enjoy seeing cars fixed up, restored, or um, did I get a shout out there from someone? I I thought I heard a woot. Um, That's not my thing. I'm I'm more into the house thing, but, but whatever, whatever it may be. It could be old books. We just like to see things restored, made new again. And as Christians, this really shouldn't be surprising, because... Uh, One of the big themes in scripture is of God doing a fixer-upper. The bulk of the Bible is a restoration story. In Genesis, God first built the world as a perfect place for mankind to dwell in, where we would dwell in perfect harmony with him. Then sin came in and wreaked havoc, wrecked that dwelling place, and most significantly, breaking that relationship so that God a holy God who cannot dwell with sin. He couldn't, in that same way, dwell with Adam and Eve because they had sin. They were cast out of the garden, that, that special place where God had designed for them to dwell with him. But God didn't give up on his good design to dwell with his people. So God embarked on this restoration project. And so this, this happens really in, in Genesis 3, and so the rest of Scripture is, is God working out his restoration project. We can follow that all the way through the storyline of the Bible, and God kind of, you might say, revealed it room by room, little by little. He didn't, he didn't lay out the whole thing at once, but it's revealed room by room, and the tabernacle was a very significant part of that unveiling that God did. It was foreshadowing or hinting at greater things still to be revealed. And the tabernacle was such a significant part of God's design to dwell with his people that the imagery that we find in the tabernacle, which we'll be looking at over the coming weeks, that same imagery is carried out through, throughout the whole Bible, all the way to the end, really, in, in the book of Revelation. We still see much of the same imagery that we find here in Exodus. So this is God's plan for restoration, but God works through means. This this need for a restoration project, that didn't surprise God. He had ordained this restoration plan from eternity past, but God had also ordained the way that that plan would be accomplished. And the incredible thing is that God uses the devoted response of his people to accomplish his plan to dwell with his people. And so Exodus 25, 8 is the key verse of our passage today. It's really the key idea from here to the end of Exodus. In that verse, God tells Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So they will make the sanctuary. That's their response. God's requiring this devoted response. And the purpose is that or so that God may dwell in their midst. God is requiring this response of them. So again, the big idea here is God's design to dwell with his people demands a devoted response. And we see this here in God's instructions for the tabernacle. So you remember that at this point, God has already brought Israel into a covenant relationship with himself. They're the people among whom God has chosen to make himself known in a special way. But in order for them to enjoy the benefits and the blessings of that covenant relationship, God is requiring a response from them. And so the first thing that he requires of them is dedication to his design. They must have a dedication to God's design. So Exodus 25, 9 God's talking to Moses, and he says, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. This is reiterated in a different way in Exodus 35, verse 4, where Moses is relaying this. He says, To to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Not suggested, but commanded. As we'll see in the coming weeks, what God is, is saying to exactly follow is every detail of the tabernacle, its material, its construction, its, its dimensions, and every aspect of the worship that would take place within the tabernacle. God lays it out in minute detail. And the reason for that is that because of sin, even within this covenantal relationship, God's people couldn't just approach him however they felt like it. They didn't set the terms of how God would dwell among them or how they would relate to God. God set the terms. God required from them a total dedication for his design for how he would dwell among them. And then secondly, God required of them true generosity. So in Exodus 25, in verse 2, we read, From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Similarly in Exodus 35, 5, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. So God's requiring from them, not just the materials for the tabernacle, but he's requiring that those materials be given in true generosity, meaning a genuine, heartfelt generosity. This isn't a tax, It's not a begrudging offering. And we see in this that God has always required more than just external obedience from his people. He requires his people's hearts. This was to be an overflow of glad-hearted giving by the people in recognition that their God had had, in fact, saved them, sustained them, that he'd spoken to Him, spoken to them that he was desiring to settle among them. This was to be an overflow. And additionally, their generous giving would show that they recognized that everything that they had came from God. When you look at that list of materials for the tabernacle, uh, most of it is not common, everyday stuff. Some of those things we don't recognize, but uh, even things like gold, silver, bronze, those are called precious Metals, because they're relatively rare. They were uh, precious then, they were rare then, and they are the same now. And the Israelites should have seen in a very direct way that these things that God is, is requiring that they give had come first from him. I mean, you think about where they came from. They had been slaves in Egypt. Slavery is not exactly a wealth-building career. Right, it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a path towards building wealth, to storing up treasure. And so they didn't have anything. They were slaves. But remember what happened as they were leaving Egypt? Remember what God told them to do? Exodus 12, 35 and 36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Everything that God's requiring for the tabernacle, they'd received from the Egyptians because God had moved the hearts of the Egyptians to give it to the Israelites. So God gave them what he's now saying. Give me, a. I want a portion of that back. And one of the reasons is so that you will have joy in recognizing that everything you have came from me in the first place. So in response to God's grace and grace, His mercy, His abundant provision for them, He required a response of true generosity so that they could enjoy the blessing of His presence with them. Thirdly, God requires that they prepare for Him a holy place. Again, Exodus 25, 8 says, God is saying, "...and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." And today we most often hear the word sanctuary in reference to a safe place. And we sometimes, we actually avoid the language here at Piney Ridge, but sometimes at churches they'll, they'll talk about the main meeting space as a, a sanctuary. But often we think about finding sanctuary. That's like a safe place, right? But in, um, in this passage, the Hebrew word here more literally means a place where holiness lives a place where holiness lives. The tabernacle was to be a place set apart for the dwelling of the Holy One Himself, the place where holiness lives. That's that's why the materials were to be costly. And the way that the worship was to take place was to be unique, set apart. We'll see in the coming weeks, there are certain things that, that the Israelites were supposed to create and use that would only be dedicated to The worship of God, holy, set apart. All of this pointed towards the holiness, the purity, the uniqueness of the one whose presence dwelt in the tabernacle. So God requires dedication to his design, true generosity, and a holy place in the building of the tabernacle. But for all of its uniqueness and specialness, the tabernacle was just a shadow. It was like a blueprint pointing towards the true dwelling place. Um, Most of you here probably know that we built our own house a couple of years ago. And uh, so my wife drew up the floor plan. We sent it to an architect who created blueprints. And throughout the construction of the house, carried the blueprints around. And then when we were done, threw them in the room where all my tools and other junk is, and I was trying to clean some of that stuff out recently, and the house is done, so what did I do with the blueprints? I, I tossed them out, because they're all ratty and nasty, and I've got an electronic copy. Anyway, but we threw out the blueprints because we have the actual thing. We have the house, and this is what the tabernacle was like. It was like the blueprints that are tossed out. It was designed always to be temporary, and that's true even of the temple, which would Um, kind of be the next step from the tabernacle. But the, the temple was always intended to be temporary as well. These things were laying out the pattern for a far greater and everlasting way that God would dwell with his people. And this blueprint, this pattern was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Remember, the Bible is telling this story of God's restoration project, how he would restore what was ruined by sin so that he could dwell with his people. God announced in Genesis 3 that this restoration project would center around one who would be born from the seed of the woman, Eve. And God began accomplishing this restoration over the course of history, eventually revealing that Jesus Christ was that one who was promised way back in Genesis 3, the one through whom this restoration would finally be completed. So God makes this beautifully and vividly clear through John's gospel, John one one in the beginning was the word right the word was with god and the word was god john's speaking here about god the son the second person of the trinity he's the word and then incredibly in in verse 14 he says that the word god became flesh and dwelt among us god himself has come to dwell among us and in the greek the word translated uh, that's that's dwelt that god dwelt among us the word became flesh and dwelt among us that word dwelt could literally be translated tabernacled the word became flesh and tabernacled among us in jesus god is tabernacling with his people jesus is what the tabernacle could not be a perfect and permanent place where god would dwell with his people and so it shouldn't be surprising that as jesus is is the fulfillment of this pattern that he also fulfills the three requirements that god gave israel for the building of the tabernacle jesus was completely dedicated to god's design he says this over and over again throughout his earthly ministry in john 6 38 jesus declares i have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This dedication is seen with probably the most clarity possible in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was faced with the impending horror of the cross and Jesus prays, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Your design. God's restoration plan to dwell with his people took Jesus to the cross and Jesus didn't turn aside from God's design he embraced it all the way to the point of his death and in all of his life and most clearly at the cross we see that Jesus responded to God's design with true generosity the apostle Paul uh, gets at this in 2nd Corinthians chapter 8 in verse 9 when he says He's, he's encouraging the church to be generous and he uses the example of Jesus. He says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus came to serve, not to be served, to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark ten forty five. He gave up Heavenly bliss for earthly strife. He gave his time, he gave his energy, and ultimately he gave his life. And all of this, not begrudgingly, but gladly. True generosity. And again, the, the gospel of John relates to this so beautifully, just the generous heart of Jesus. In John 434, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish. His work, his giving of himself, it wasn't reluctant, it wasn't begrudging. His father's will was for him to give and to give and to give, and he gave himself with the same desire that we have for eating. I mean, if you've ever been truly hungry, you didn't eat begrudgingly when you finally got some food. I mean, most of us honestly have never really experienced true hunger you got to kind of watch one of those survival shows to see what true hunger looks like. They find some grubs in something dead on the ground and they start eating them. They don't eat them begrudgingly. They're happy to get them. They, they are thankful. They're wholeheartedly eating those disgusting grubs. And that's what Jesus is saying that his desire to do the will of God is like. It's, in, it's an insatiable desire to give and give and give. Wholeheartedly, Jesus gave himself. And lastly, as God required a holy place to dwell in the tabernacle, God also required a holy person in which to dwell. And Jesus is that holy person. He is morally holy. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sin. He's also holy in that he has... At- that he is absolutely unique. That's, that's part of what the meaning of holiness is set apart, unique. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul tells us that in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is absolutely unique. This is true of no other person. Jesus is holy in that he is infinitely valuable. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 Peter says, you were ransomed. He's talking to the people of God. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Compared to the blood of Jesus, silver and gold are worthless They're perishable. They're worthless. They're like nothing compared with the blood of Jesus Christ. It's precious because He is precious. His value is infinite. And Jesus was holy in that He was set apart, that He was dedicated fully to being the dwelling place of God. And this was made visible when the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove after His baptism. Again, in the Gospel of John, Chapter 1, verse 32, it says that John bore witness, speaking of John the Baptist, or John the baptizer, bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. The Holy Spirit remained on Jesus, indwelling him fully, setting him apart, anointing him for service to God. And in the Gospels, even the demons, if you remember, they recognize that this is true of Jesus They said, what do you have to do with us? You are the Holy One of God. We know who you are, the demons say. You're the Holy One of God. Jesus is the holy person that God requires for his dwelling place. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle in him above all we see this truth that we've been talking about displayed that God's design to dwell with his people demands a devoted response. Jesus gave that devoted response, all of himself, so that God could dwell with his people. Jesus is the the corners, he's called the cornerstone and the capstone of God's restoration project. None of it, none of it holds together without Jesus. And yet, the story didn't end with his coming. Because God intends to restore a whole people, a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue that he will dwell with. His restoration design, lastly, is seen in the church. And again, it's not surprising that in God's design for the church, he requires these same three responses God requires dedication to his design. And the first and essential element of the design for God's dwelling place in the church is that it is built upon Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3:11, "For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ." There is no dwelling with God apart from Jesus. Are we we know from Scripture and we believe that God is omnipresent. That is, that God is everywhere. But God is not everywhere in the same way. God is not everywhere to bless. God is not everywhere to save. God is not everywhere to give everlasting life and peace and joy. And these things are what God means when he says that I will dwell among you. He means that he will be with us as his people to use his infinite power and wisdom to work all things for good in life and even in death. He will work all of these things for our greatest eternal joy. That's what God means when he says he will dwell with his people. But God only dwells with you in this way if you are united to Jesus by faith. To be united to Jesus by faith means that you are trusting in Jesus to, to be the only way to God, the only way to be with God, the only way to be free from the wrath of God for your sin. It means trusting that Jesus is the only way to have life, to have it fully, truly, completely, as God intended us to have life. It means that you are trusting Jesus completely with all that you have and all that you are. This is what it means to have faith in Jesus. So is Jesus the foundation that your life is built upon. There's no hope for life or eternity apart from Him. You can't truly know God or enjoy His fellowship unless you build your life on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's God's design. And for those in the room who would say yes, Jesus is the foundation of my life. I'm building my life upon him. Well, then God requires us to respond by joining with him in this restoration project. But there is a way in which, there are many ways, but I want to highlight right now one way in which the new covenant is better than the old covenant that old covenant that Israel was under, where God gave these requirements for the tabernacle. One of the ways that the new covenant is better than the old covenant is that as the church, because we are united with Christ, the same spirit that indwelled Christ indwells us. And we are being built up by that spirit. We're being built up to be a dwelling place for God by the spirit. I want to read Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. For through him, that's Christ, You also, you church, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's not our power. It's not ultimately dependent upon us. Praise the Lord. Amen. The church, this dwelling place for God, will be built because the Spirit is the one building us into that dwelling place. And at the same time, there's a tension, but there's no contradiction here. In this covenant relationship, God still requires a devoted response from us, just like he did with Israel. And in our response, God requires us also to be dedicated to his design, which means that as we seek to be a part of this restoration project that we don't use worldly techniques and strategies that we follow god's design and god's design is that the church is built up through the spirit empowered ministry of the word that's not just preaching that's that's bible studies that's piney families that's discipleship groups that's one-on-one conversations that's word ministry through encouraging those who are struggling hurting, meeting with someone who's struggling in their faith and giving them the word, empowered by the spirit. This is how the church is built up. The church is built up according to God's design through prayer, through the preaching of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 4 says that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice the body builds itself up in love. We just read in Ephesians 2, we're being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here in Ephesians 4, the body makes itself grow up. It builds itself up in love. So it's the Spirit working in us so that we together build up the body. And right before this in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about how this happens. It's as pastors equip the saints, you all, for the work of ministry. As you are equipped, as you embrace what God has called you to do, what he's empowered you to do, then you build up the body through your spirit-empowered gospel-centered, word-saturated, Christ-focused ministry. This is God's design for building up the church. And this requires the second response, which is true generosity. The building up of the church is costly. And in speaking of building up the church, I am talking about building up, edifying, strengthening those who have already believed but I'm also talking about building up the church by bringing in all of God's elect into the church. And both of those are costly. Building up the church in every way, it is costly. Yes, it's, it's costly in terms of money. It means giving generously to the work of gospel ministry here at Pine Ridge Church through regular giving, through special offerings. It means giving generously to meet the needs of people within our body to give, to encourage those within our body. It means giving generously to help send out missionaries like the Sadiches, to go to the nations, to call in God's elect from all those nations. And all of this, all of this giving of finances, it's, it's to be done, as Exodus 25 says, because our heart has moved us, because we've been so moved by the gospel That we see it as a gracious thing to be able to take part in this restoration project that God is about in the world. And, like Israel, it's it's meant to help us to see that everything that we have came from God in the first place. So we should be glad to be stewards of it, to give back a portion. But it's actually not just a portion. Maybe we give a portion to specific word, obviously word ministry-centered things, but God actually demands all of our money, and he demands more than our money. God requires us to be generous with every second of our time, every thought, every word, every action, everything. All of it is to be stewarded towards making disciples to the glory of God. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes his ministry in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. He's writing to them after he'd been there. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Are you responding to God in this way? Are you eager to share not just your money, but also the gospel, and not just the gospel, but to share your whole life self, with your family, with your brothers and sisters in the church, with your neighbors, with your coworkers. Do you think of, do you see, and, and then do you actually treat and, and act out in what you see in your mind, the fact that your house, your car, your skills, your time, your attention, your energy, everything else that God has given to you, these are things that God has given to you to steward for the aim of building up a dwelling place for God. God's grace in allowing us to be a part of this restoration project requires us to respond with true generosity. And lastly, it requires us to pursue holiness. God required a holy place with a tabernacle, God required a holy person in Jesus Christ and he requires in the church a holy people and knowing ourselves as we do knowing our massive struggles in an ongoing way with sin this seems like an impossible requirement that God would require a response of holiness but this also is part of the glory of the new covenant We're simply in this, being called to live out our true identity in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, then he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And as a new creation... You are called to live out that identity. God has made you new. His, His restoration plan has made you new. And so embrace that new identity by pursuing holiness. God calls us to holiness. You don't have to just take my word for it. I, I didn't just put it in here because it fits with the other points that I've created in the message so far. This is actually in God's word. 1 Peter 1, 14-16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is what God says to his people. Be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Why does God call us to this? Because we are His dwelling place. The church is the dwelling place of God. So we're to reflect His character. We're to reflect His values, His moral values. We're to reflect God's worth. Why would we fight so hard against cultural pressures? Why would we fight so hard against our own uh, internal impulses? Because God is worth it. So does your personal war against sin reflect God's holiness? Does your war against sin within the church reflect God's holiness? Because we're being built up together. We're called to speak the truth in love to one another, so that together we are growing in holiness. Does your sacrificial love reflect the worth of God? Does your life as a whole present a compelling witness of God's worth and power to those who look on at your life? And I know that for some of you, this battle to be holy may seem hopeless because your sin seems to win again and again. But it's not hopeless. Friends, I want to tell you, it's not hopeless in the gospel, we have hope. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so we have hope. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is giving us life. It's God who is at work, even in our working. We've been born again to hope, to a living hope. First Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, church, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You're being built up by the Spirit to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're being built up like living stones. This is encouraging, again, because it's the Spirit who is building us up. It's not in our own power, but the second half of the verse is encouraging too. Because as we offer our spiritual sacrifices, our our giving, our living sacrificially, our battling against sin... These things, as imperfect as they are, are made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is incredibly good news. Our sincere fighting against sin, our sincere efforts, even though we know our own hearts and we know that there's mixed motives, our, our, our desires to serve and to love and our efforts, these things... They 're not acceptable to God because of how good we 've done them or because we 've done them perfectly they 're acceptable to God because we offer them through Jesus Christ so I pray that you 're encouraged, and God gives us such encouragement in this battle well why why would we do this why would we why would we strive? Why would we be so generous with our time and our money and all these things? Why would we be so so focused on god's design for building up his church when it seems like other things would work so much better and faster and would be easier we do this because god has promised an incredible reward for those who remain faithful he is going to one day bring in the fullness of His dwelling place, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so I want to end with this passage from Revelation 24. This is, this is the trajectory of God's restoration project. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We will be with God. He will dwell among us forever. What an incredible gospel God has given to us. Let's cling to this hope. Let's fight through this hope. Let's be generous through this hope. And each week, for those of us who are part of the church, we we get a little taste of, of what we just read. This this little taste of what it's going to be like to dwell with God and his people. In Revelation, this this coming of the bride and meeting the bridegroom results in a feast, a meal. In scripture, throughout Scripture, having a meal together is is a, a sign of intimate, deep fellowship. And so when we take communion, we are getting a very small taste, but it is a taste, it's a true taste of what that fellowship with all the people of God, all the body of Christ, all of his dwelling place together. So it's why we do communion together, not not separately in our homes. We did that for a little bit during COVID, and it wasn't good. We're supposed to do it together. That's that was that was making um, that was making an exception that we don't want to do uh, ever again. Hopefully, we're intended to take communion together because it's a foretaste of the whole church coming together. And we've we've done communion different ways. Um, we obviously changed it up with COVID just to minimize affections and infections and not affections, infections. We don't want to minimize affections in relation to communion at all. But infections, uh, and I know that some of you are germaphobes and you've probably always hated tearing off the bread and dipping it in the juice. Um, So we don't know when we're going to go back to that. But one thing that we are going to go back to periodically, because we have freedom. uh, Scripture doesn't prescribe everything about communion. There are There is freedom in some things in regards to communion. So one of the things that we we did really for years was that we would um, come, stand in line, and take the communion elements and then take them back to our seats. And um, many of us, if we're here with our family, we would take a few moments, maybe with your kids, just to explain what communion is about, to pray with your family. Um, If you're not here with the family, sometimes just a couple people... Uh, believers sitting next to one another. You're you're family in Christ. And so um, a couple people just get together and pray and take communion together in that way. Um, And I I love doing it that way. Again, there's no prescribed way in that sense. Um, But I I love just being up together. I kind of, you know, we're sitting in chairs all looking forward. If you're in the back, you kind of can see everyone. You see the back of their heads a little bit. But when we get up, it just gives, for me, a better picture of, of the church, of, of this congregation, of this dwelling place for God. And so uh, in just a minute, the way that we do this is that we'll, we'll go out. Uh, sorry, the right side, your, your right, my left. You will head out that way. If you're towards the front, come to the tables in the front. If you're towards the back, tables in the back. Um, so go out to your right and then circle around and go back into your seat on the left. On this side, there are, uh, there's a cart in the back, there's a cart in the front. And on these, if you need gluten-free communion supplies, those are here um, on this side. There are also non-gluten-free on, this, on these carts as well, but the gluten-free uh, elements are over here. And what we're doing in communion in this meal is, is celebrating that our, our faith, our, our life, this, this church... This dwelling place for God is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and upon the the central act of his giving of himself, which was the cross, the apex, that on the cross, Christ gave himself to the full, that he gave up his body, which is represented through the bread. He gave up his blood, which was poured out, that's represented by the juice, and so This is a time for those who are actually in fellowship with God through Christ. And so if that's not true, if you're not trusting in Jesus, please don't come up and take communion. Um, I'm going to sit down here in the front. If you'd like to during this time, um, you can come and pray with me or talk with me. I'd love to do that. If you want to hear more about what it means to have faith in Jesus, but you're not comfortable just talking with someone this morning, we would love for you to fill out a connection card and drop it in one of these boxes in the back. And let us know that you, you want to talk with someone more about what it means to believe and follow Jesus. Or you can email us, prcpastors, prc Pastors at pineyridgechurch.org. Um, I'm going to pray, and then for those who... Actually, would you go ahead and stand, because you're going to be moving here in a moment. I'm going to pray, and then for those who should come, I invite you to come and enjoy the fellowship of Christ through communion. Lord Jesus, we praise you that we have fellowship with God through you thank you that you are a faithful Savior you are the same yesterday today and forevermore you are not temporary you are permanent and we place our lives upon you Jesus you are our solid rock I pray that you encourage us by your Spirit now as we take this meal that you've ordained. Strengthen us by it. Build us up through it. We pray in your name. Amen. Go ahead and come when you're ready.